Yo, 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 what's going on, everyone? And welcome to the podcast called Getting to Know God. This is the place where we look to the scriptures and only the scriptures to know the one true living God of the Bible, letting him speak for himself and his word through the Psalms. I'm Brandon, also known as Pastor B-Side, and today we're going to look at the attributes of God as the Lord describes them in Psalm 14. The title of our study today is called The Fool. Nobody wants to be a fool, right? So let's listen in to see what the Lord has to say about this. But real quick, before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that if you've been digging on these studies, please take a second and make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast and telling people about it on social media as well. Sharing it with the people you know, a simple tap of the like or the share button could help put the true gospel of Jesus Christ in front of someone's eyes, maybe even for the first time, or encourage a believer who really needs it. And that's what we want, right? All right, so enough of that. Let's check these verses. In Psalm 14, here's what the Bible says. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. All right. So I hope you caught that clearly because there are some very heavy subjects here that we need to make sure we understand clearly. So listen close and let's check it out. All right. So God's perspective about people is much different than the perception that people have about themselves. History has shown that even though everyone struggles in life, we as people are actually quite proud of ourselves for some reason. We praise people for all kinds of things, right? We acknowledge, we honor, reward, and exalt people, their accomplishments, their philosophies, and their creativity all the time. The Bible expresses a whole different point of view. The Bible teaches that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, God cursed mankind so that the best that a human being could produce in their lives would be equal to thorns and thistles, which is contrary to the fruit that God actually desires. The Bible teaches that God sees the righteousness of people like filthy rags from his perspective in his heavenly economy. And don't get it twisted, that's the one that matters. The scriptures are candid to explain that all people fall short of God's glory and that we as people are naturally evil, corrupt, dark, and demonic in the eyes of God. Now, I understand this might not be what you want to hear, but this is what the Bible teaches as true. If we accept the truth of God's perspective in Scripture, we should see that this is a big problem for all people. If our condition doesn't change from its natural condition when we're first born, then we will all suffer the consequences of that natural condition. And we're talking eternity in hell, flat out. Now, thankfully, God has provided a way of escape. But that salvation 
requires that we first confess the issue that God says we all have and be in full agreement with the depths of his explanation. Just how bad is the human condition? Well, Psalm 14 really lets us all know. Psalm 14 is a psalm written by King David. And this is an interesting truth to consider, being that the Bible also calls David a man after God's own heart. I mean, we've covered quite a few psalms already that show how cool of a relationship David had with God, but he was definitely a flawed human just like the rest of us. David was God's anointed servant, used to establish the messianic throne of Israel in Jerusalem. The catch, though, is that David was humble to admit the truth about his natural condition. Yes, he was a man of exemplary faith and a unique tool of God's righteousness, but David himself understood the spiritual issues that we're all born with, including himself. The introduction to Psalm 14 starts pretty bluntly and candidly to explain what David knew about himself and the rest of the human race. It starts by saying, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. The premise of God's perspective here begins with an indictment on the attitude that's natural to every human being ever born. And remember, this is God's perspective, which is the one that matters, which means that this is what's true, regardless of our opinion. The scriptures explain what the fool says in their hearts that reflects their attitudes. First, the term fool refers to someone that is senseless. This describes someone that lacks the wisdom and understanding of God. Based on the teaching of Proverbs chapter 1, the fool is senseless, lacking wisdom, because they have no fear of God. The Psalm of David explains why the fool has no fear of God. While the modern translations of the Bible show that the verse reads, there is no God, The modern translations of the Bible are wise to put in the English phrase, there is, that phrase there, in brackets. This shows that those words are actually not in the original manuscripts of the Bible. In other words, the attitude of the fool doesn't necessarily refute the existence of God like the modern English translations might suggest. Instead, the original text shows that the fool actually denies the authority of God, a whole separate issue. This verse could more accurately be translated, the fool has said in his heart, no God. Sounds a bit different, doesn't it? This issue is not about the existence of God. The issue is about rebellion. The fool is the one that denies the sovereignty of God, the righteous judgments of God, and the consequences for denying him. This is why the fool lacks sense. There's no fear of the consequences of denying God and rebelling against his purposes. While this might seem true of some people, David, a man after God's own heart, whom the Bible upholds as a hero of faith, actually includes himself in the description of the fool. It's true that David used third-person pronouns like they to describe the fool, but he summarizes the essence of foolishness by saying that there is none who does good. There's not a single person who does anything good in the eyes of God by their natural ability. By extension, all people are fools in the eyes of God, having no natural fear of God, constantly 
rebelling against his authority, his control, his purposes, and, of course, the eternal nature of his promises. David described the characteristic of a fool, but then included himself in that category. Why would he do such a thing? Well, the psalm goes on to explain why David agreed with God's accusation against the human race, which included himself. Even though God's accusation condemns all people, (laughs) David actually agreed. Here's why. In verse 2, here's what the Bible says. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. The Bible teaches that the Lord looks down constantly from heaven to validate his statements. God is not making general statements based on opinions developed long ago about a particular group. The Bible explains that God looks down from heaven. The word look refers to a stern gaze. It describes a person that is kind of leaning over to get a closer look. Now, this isn't to suggest that God has like bad eyesight and he needs to get closer. It actually explains how intently God is examining his creation. He's paying attention and he's paying attention to everyone at all times and closely looking at the words, the conduct, the attitude and intents of the heart of every human being. Notice that David's psalm began by explaining the things that God hears the fool say in their heart. It's also important to consider the tense that David wrote in. It's not that God looked as if in the past tense. The tense of the word shows that God looks with an S as in the present tense, but that present tense actually continues into the future. In other words, the Bible can accuse all people, like literally every single person, of being a rebellious fool that opposes God without fear because God has been paying close attention to every human heart since the beginning and has examined the souls of all people at all times in history and will continue to do so moving forward until the end. When God looks at the heart, the Bible shows that he's looking for really two things here. He looks to see if there are any who understand him and if there are any who are seeking after him. When God looks into the hearts of every person, what he's found is that nobody understands him. That means that no one can actually relate to God in terms of his righteousness, his goodness, holiness, purity, his integrity, his eternal purposes, or his eternal promises. The Bible teaches that we are absolutely contrary in nature to God. Even though we were made in his image in the beginning, the scriptures teach that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We don't live according to the nature that God originally created us and intended us to live in. So he's right. God is right to call us all rebels. Worse yet, when God looks at the natural human heart, he sees that we don't even care to seek him. Not only do we fail to truly understand the character and nature of God by our own natural ability, you know, we're talking about the purposes and promises of God, but in spite of that, we don't even seek understanding either. In other words, God is able to see the natural human heart And it's totally indifferent to the things of God, even though he created us, he provides for us, he sustains us, he shows us mercy, he desires to bless us, and so forth. When God makes himself, his purposes, and his promises known to us, what do we want to do? We want to rebel. We want to deny the truth and the value of God's revelations. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 that God has sufficiently revealed his eternal power and Godhead through creation. Yet, what has the human race done? We've made it a habit of worshiping the creation instead of the creator. The natural heart cares more about self than about God. 
Think about how Jesus explained his reasons for teaching in parables when he was confronted about that. Remember that the disciples asked why Jesus spoke in parables, were his points they were kind of hard to understand. Jesus answered this way in Matthew chapter 13, verses 11 through 15. Here's what it says there. Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. For whoever has, to him, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn, so that I should heal them. According to Jesus, he knew that the natural hearts of people were cold and indifferent to him, his purposes, and his promises. And he knew these things because he's God in flesh. The parables proved his assessment was true. When the people who didn't truly care about God heard the parables and they didn't understand them, they didn't follow Jesus. They didn't seek him to pursue understanding. Nobody asked questions. They were content with ignorance. They had things to do in their lives that seemed more important to them, so they went off and did them. They didn't chase understanding of the eternal and spiritual things of the Father's Messiah. There was God in flesh talking to them, and the people were totally confused and just didn't care. So the accusation of the Father made in Psalm 14, we see Jesus, who is God in flesh, confirm when he was here with boots on the ground, interacting with the people, proving what was first said a thousand years before in Psalm 14. According to Psalm 14, this has always been the case for all people who are ever born, which unfortunately is all people, even David, which if you haven't guessed it, that would include you and me also. Now, God went on to ask of himself, will the wicked ever learn? Now, this is a tough question. How can the naturally wicked heart learn about God if the naturally wicked heart will not even turn to God to seek understanding from him? Hmm. How will the fool become wise if the fool is focused on rebellion so that they can live their own lives, their own ways without considering God? How can a person actually be changed and transformed from a fool to a friend if the fool continues to deny the only one that can manufacture such a transformation? God explained that the fool doesn't call to him for help. The fool continues in the ways of foolishness as if they're profitable and fruitful. And look in the world today. Is that not exactly what we see? And then what ends up happening is God explained it. We end up trampling over other people in the process. Look at what Psalm 14 verses 3 through 4 says. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? Look, the fact is that the fool goes about living as a rebel of God, denying God by denying God's people. That's how it works. The fool not only destroys their own lives in rebellion against God, but also expresses that rebellion against God by trying to discourage and ruin the lives of other people that might actually be trying to repent and live faithfully to honor God. Now here, it's important to notice that while David classified all people as hopeless fools, 
he did make a distinction, and it's really important to see this distinction. There are actually some who, while foolish, are not hopeless and not condemned, but are actually called children of God. Even though all people are naturally rebellious against God, there are actually some people who somehow undergo a transformation to become friends of God, heirs of God's blessings and promises, and actual instruments of God's righteousness. How does that happen if the fool rejects God, never pursues God, and lives by standards that are contrary to God? Clearly, the fool is not the one responsible for this change. Check this out. David wrote that God will cause the fool to live in terror and fear in their hearts on account of their rebellion. That makes sense. Regardless of the fronts that we as fools put up, when we continue to live according to our natural condition, the fear of God's judgment, (laughs) it will reside deep in the innermost parts of our hearts. It's there whether we admit it or not. There will be moments where the sobering reality of our mortality, right? Death kind of lurking in the distance that will confront us and cause us to consider what it might be like to actually face death and ultimately face God. The fool won't admit this fear, but the Bible is clear to show that the fear is real. They don't fear God, but they do fear that. And we know this is true because God himself is the one that inflicts this fear. This is why so many fools don't want to hear the real teaching of the Bible and the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The real teaching of the Bible and the true gospel of Jesus Christ brings our foolishness to the forefront like it is right now, right? Demanding that it be dealt with in a particular way through repentance. The fool might be convicted, but doesn't respond to that. So the fool finds ways to avoid the conviction. Now, that is not the case for the righteous. Verse 5 in Psalm 14 says, For God is with the generation of the righteous. So here's the tricky part. Who is righteous if the scriptures previously said, none are righteous, no, not one? (laughs) How can God say that no one is righteous, but then say that he is with a whole generation of people that he calls righteous? This is that kind of stuff that people point to as like a contradiction in scripture, but that's not the case. The answer to this tough issue that seems like a contradiction is answered by an understanding of the full context and counsel of God's word. So we have to know what righteousness means in this particular setting, in this context, right? Well, the Bible explains who is righteous. For example, in Hosea chapter 14, verse 9, here's what it says. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but transgressors stumble in them. So the Bible explains that the Lord, he's the only one that's ever right, right? He alone is righteous. However, he is also called the Lord, our righteousness, because he is willing to forgive the fool of their foolishness if the fool will hear the truth of his testimony and walk by faith in it. In other words, the righteous live by faith just like it says in Habakkuk 2.4 and Romans 1.17. So here's how this works. God reveals his righteousness, and those who actually receive God's revelation of righteousness turn from natural rebellion that we all are born into, right? And we do so in order to submit to God's righteousness, trusting his righteousness as supremely good, especially in light of our understanding of our corrupted self. This is what we refer to as humble 
repentance. We turn from the idea that we can do good all on our own. We confess our sinful condition to God, agreeing with the truth that we're learning about in Psalm 14, and admit that God alone is righteous. In these days, we look to Jesus as God in flesh as the focal point of who God is. Now, those who accept the word of God this way will be forgiven of our natural foolishness and declared righteous in spite of our natural condition. Now, let's understand how Jesus fits into this more particularly, right? According to the Bible, Jesus fulfills two critical roles. He is the son of God, meaning that he is God in flesh. He is also the Messiah King of Israel, meaning that he is the promised savior that fulfills all of the father's eternally unconditional promises, including the offer of forgiveness and spiritual cleansing for foolish hearts. Since Jesus is the Messiah, he is also called the Lord, our righteousness in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse six and Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 16. Now this was publicly validated by his atoning sacrifice and resurrection. This means that Jesus is the focal point that we must trust in based on who he is in order to receive forgiveness for our natural foolish condition. Jesus himself explained it this way. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus clearly taught that two births need to take place in order to dwell in heaven with the one true righteous God. He said, we must be born of water, which actually refers to our first physical birth. So if you're listening to this as a human being, check, that one's already done, right? However, since none are righteous, we need to be born again, a second time by the spirit of God himself. Our dead, corrupted, foolish hearts that God sees as unfit and worthy of condemnation, they need to be spiritually regenerated and made alive. God doesn't want dead souls in his presence and in his kingdom. It's an offense to him, which is why they're condemned. Since this is a spiritual issue and a spiritual work that needs to take place, we as fools are totally unqualified to do this work. This work must be done by God himself. Now, thankfully, he did this work according to his grace, not because of things we did that merit it. And he did it through the conduit of love. He took our foolishness and paid the consequences of our rebellion himself as the Lamb of God. Since Jesus died as God in flesh to pay the penalty of sin, forgiveness for our natural foolishness is actually made possible. God will credit his forgiveness towards us when we trust in the supremacy of his righteousness and the manner in which it came, which is through the revelation of his righteousness in Jesus, and then confess our inadequacy and our depravity. In other words, admit that we're the fools the Bible says we are. When we admit that we're fools and we seek God's righteousness in the manner that his word says, as we're learning about right now, that faith will cause God to declare us righteous, even though we're naturally foolish. Talk about a win, right? This is why the Lord is the refuge to the righteous. It's not because of the works of fools that seem good. Even as God's children, we still aren't good, just like David knew about himself. God protects 
the righteous who are faithful, not good, faithful, because he's protecting the integrity of his own work to transform a fool into the image of his own righteousness. God is merely protecting his own investment, his spirit that is placed into the heart of the faithful, protecting them from the consequences of our natural foolishness. So while David was the king of Israel, he concluded Psalm 14 this way. It's kind of interesting. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. David was God's anointed in one sense, but he looked for someone greater than himself with hope and faith. David was the king of Israel in one sense, but obviously he's looking for another king that was mightier than him. David ruled in Jerusalem in one sense, but looked for one greater than him to come out of Zion. David was used to protect Israel and save them from certain conflicts from time to time. But again, he looked for someone to bring a greater form of salvation that would cause all of Israel to rejoice and be glad to an infinite measure that he couldn't even imagine, really. (laughs) David knew that he was an heir to God's eternally unconditional promises, but also knew that of himself, he was unrighteous, he was corrupt, he didn't understand God, and if not for God's calling, he would not have sought God at all. And that's what's true for all of us. This is why David looked to one greater than himself to administrate and fulfill the eternally unconditional promises of the Father. David looked for Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. David knew his place in the Lord. He was just as foolish as the people that didn't know God, even though he had graciously received God's revelation and calling. No matter how much God used David, David knew his nature, and he knew that unless the Lord comes out of Zion, according to the promise of the Messiah's rule and reign, he would remain a fool. Our foolishness actually won't really be fully addressed until the Messiah's return. We're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so like David, all of God's people, us today here right now, should cherish this promise above all things. Praise God for making such a promise to consider a fool forgiven and cleansed to impart wisdom to those who lack understanding, to join himself to those who otherwise wouldn't seek him, right? That's each and every one of us who have been saved. Remember, we've been saved. We didn't earn this. Because of our foolishness, we were on a fast path to hell. But because of Jesus and what he did according to the will of the Father and the indwelling of the Spirit, we don't have to go there. We have a different purpose. Even though we still show ourselves as fools, God has a greater purpose for us. Thank you, Jesus, the one true living God who was, who is, and who is to come out of Zion. And that's what the Bible teaches about the one that we know as God. So look, before I get out of here, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder. Please keep in mind that all of the Bible teaching I do here is 100% listener supported. This means that I depend on listeners like you to pay the bills for the tools that make this stuff available to you, as well as pay for all the time that it takes to study the word and prepare to this degree. And not just for this study, but for a whole bunch of others that we got offered on our website just the same. So if this podcast is helpful to you and you really value this sort of teaching, please prayerfully consider sending a donation this way. Look, we're a legit nonprofit. We have a 501c3 issued from the IRS operating through our parent ministry called Proper Knowledge Ministries. 
If you'd like to partner with the work of the gospel that we're doing, you can visit www.pastorbside, like the flip side of a record, .com. Hit the support tab when you get there and give any amount that you're able as the Lord leads you. And believe me, every bit helps, whether it's a lot or a little, doesn't matter to the Lord. He's good at multiplying, right? And if the Lord would lead you, maybe even consider partnering monthly with us, making your gift recurring, kind of like tithing to a church. Because look, church is founded on the true teaching of the Bible, and that's exactly what we do here. Something to think about, something to pray about. So again, thanks for listening. Glad you could join us today. I hope you enjoyed the study. And until next time, peace out.